Take your Bibles tonight. We're going to turn to two passages, actually, by the same author. We'll start with Luke 22, but as you're going there, how would you finish this sentence? I thought I was ready for blank, but I wasn't. How would you finish that statement? I thought I was ready for... What's that? Adulthood. How are you doing on that? Not so great, huh? Okay. Parenting. Yes, that's check off both of those. Add both of those. I thought I was ready for, but I really wasn't. Yes. A test. Yes, I have that one too. Driver's test. How many passed your driver's test first time? How many didn't? You weren't ready, were you? Okay. I thought I was ready for... Yes, Jason. <laughs> Helping your kids with your homework. How old are they again? Okay, pray for Jason. <laughs> I thought I was ready for... Yes. The military. Ooh, I don't think I would ever be ready for that. Yes. Marriage. Marriage. Yes. School? Are you talking on a morning basis or what? Just in general, okay. I thought I was ready for... How many of you ever thought you are ready to take a vacation and got to the airport and realized you forgot things? Yes. Hopefully one of those things were not your ticket. Um, my best friend... Um, not my best friend. One of my friends tried to put his whole finger in and ate ghost pepper... Off of that. He definitely wasn't ready for that. How many have, uh, how many think the United States was ready for 9 11? Yeah, we weren't, were we? I'm not ready. I don't know that you can't. Can you really be totally ready for cancer? I, I don't think so. Um, ready for car problems when you have to pull over on the side of the road. Probably not. You think you're ready for a sport, to play a game, to be really good that day, and it ends up to be horrific. Um, you're not ready. I used to be a camp director. I was a youth pastor all during seminary, full time. And our church, small church actually, um, about 150 people, we had a camp though. We had 70 some acres, we had a lake on it. It was lake number 30. We didn't even get a name for the cake, the lake. That was what it was. And uh, every year, the little kids would have, we had a floating dock out on the lake, you know, a small distance, but it was a little further out. It would have been over your head to go there. Um, so they had to take a swim test. And they had to take a test. We had a roped off area, and they would swim the distance, you know, up to, you know, here. They had to stay afloat, and they had to swim the same distance it would have been if they swam from the shore to the floating dock. They had to swim that in this water on this kind of a level. And almost every kid, no matter how small, no matter how, they never swam in their whole life, thought they would be, oh yeah, I can do this. And most of them could not. Um, they thought they were ready for that, but they, they really weren't. There are two passages of scripture, and I'm going to put it on the, the uh, screen for you tonight, because they are incredibly comparable. One, on the I think it would be your, your left is Peter and Luke, 
and the one in Acts is Paul. Um, there are words, and I italicize and underline them because they are the same. Um, not a, the whole sentence is not exactly the same, but very close to be. They're very parallel statements. They say and mean the same thing. Two different people, two different times. And the main thing I want to draw your attention to is they both say that they are ready. They're ready. Um, the word means in the Greek to be prepared. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, to make it ready. Um, that's the word. So they thought that they were ready. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's the Luke passage. Paul, very similar words. In Acts 21, 13, for I am ready not only to be in prison, they both have prison, they both have death in their sentence, and even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you know the stories, I would guess most of you know them. Peter says those words, and he was not ready. <laughs> I mean, he was anything but ready. Paul says those words, on the other hand, and he was very ready for those things. In fact, when he did go to Jerusalem, he was imprisoned, and he was beaten, and eventually he was killed. The question is, what made the difference? What made the difference in those two? You, and so I'm going to give you my, my big idea statement again, and we're going to explore it. I said the degree of your commitment to Jesus' call in your life is equal to the degree of your commitment to Jesus' cross in your life. I would say that the profound difference between the results of these two commitment statements to Jesus centers in their view, understanding, and practice of the cross. I call it, if you want a term for it, if you would take notes, I would call it their functioning framework. How they looked at following Jesus, the framework of what it meant to follow Jesus, what the center of following Jesus was all about, and then what that would do to affect and impact your life. Now, both of them knew about the cross, but they did not understand it the same, and nor did they live it out the same. Peter's commitment to Jesus was pre cross. Paul's was post-cross. It was after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so let me show you tonight how that really matters and makes a difference. In Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, when every time Jesus uses someone's name and duplicates it, is it all, in Scripture all the way through the Bible, Jacob, Jacob, Samuel, Samuel, Moses, Moses, right? I mean, you come in the New Testament, uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Martha, Martha. I mean, anytime that your name is doubled like that, it's always for getting your attention. So what Jesus is saying to Peter tonight is crucial. He does not want him to miss it. And so he brought you and I here tonight, and you could just imagine him saying your name twice. And he doesn't want you to miss it because here's the underscore or the underlying message. You can be here and think that you are really committed to Jesus. You can really think that, wow, you know, I think I'm about as 
committed to him as I've ever been in my life. And if you asked Peter, who, by the way, was the number one disciple, he was the leader amongst all of them, and it was probably the oldest. He was the only one seemingly that's mentioned that was married. He's the oldest. He had a three-year seminary degree because his professor was Jesus. He's the only disciple who had enough courage to follow Jesus and to sense that he could be like his master by walking on the water, and he had done that, although not very well. He was one of the three disciples that was asked to accompany Jesus and see him in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Previously to this event, he had just spent a long part of the night asleep, but supposedly praying with Jesus. And by the way, that's not all. He had heard Jesus say words like Matthew 9, 23, um, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross daily and follow me. He heard words like, same book, Luke 14, 27, which says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He had heard the cross and its centrality and its power and its purpose introduced into his life and what it meant in discipleship, of which he claimed to be the greatest? He heard these words. In fact, hold your finger and turn over just a little bit, and and this is what the angel says to the women who come to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Because they don't get it. Remember, they they didn't get the crucifixion. They didn't see the resurrection coming. They didn't see any, although they had heard it, Jesus had talked about it. Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel says three times that he began to tell them that the Son of Man was going to go to Jerusalem and he would be beaten and mocked and crucified or killed is the language. And then on the third day, he he said that multiple times before they ever got there. It never sunk in. They really heard about the cross. They knew about the cross. Jesus talked about the cross. It never sunk in. So after his death and resurrection, verse 6, the angel says to these women who go back and tell the disciples, look, he is not here, he's risen. In other words, you should know this. Look what he says. Remember how he told you? I told you I was going to meet in Galilee when I resurrected. What in the world are you thinking? He says. And was why he was still in Galilee. And what did he tell you? Why, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I see, I t- Jesus told you this already because the women, he accompanied them in all their journeys. And they remembered his words. They did, they remembered, oh yes, he did talk about crosses, chiefly his own. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. They told him about, hey, remember what Jesus said? And to all the rest, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them told these things to the disciples. Now listen, still, but these words seemed to be to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Yeah, they remembered the words, but it didn't make any sense to them. They didn't believe it. It just wasn't real to them. So what happened with Peter Back in chapter 22, well, he'd heard about the cross. We told him about the cross. He had words about the cross, but it never sunk in. In fact, if we read Matthew's gospel, if you remember, 
Peter gets a revelation of some sort from God. And flesh and blood then reveal it to him. It says, but Jesus said, my father has told you this. And what was that message that he got? Well, that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, that he was the king of Israel. And within a few pages, actually a few paragraphs, not even, I think more than one or two, Jesus says, now he began to tell them that he was going to be crucified, what I told you before. And Peter, it says, pulled him aside and said, Lord, this will never happen to you. You're not going to be crucified. He rebuked him, it says. Imagine that. Grabbing Jesus by his coat, shaking him a little bit and said, that's not going to happen to you. You know why? There was no room for a cross in Peter's discipleship. You know how I know that? Look at the text right before this text in chapter 22. What are they talking about right before Jesus is going to be arrested and then crucified? Verse 24 of Luke 22, a dispute arose among them also as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, if you're thinking that, hey, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die on the cross, and eventually we're going to have to follow him, and, and if you know all of that kind of stuff and it's really sunk into your life, you're not talking about how great you are and how great. You know why you talk about your greatness? Because... You're interested and think Jesus is going to give you a kingdom where you're going to sit on a throne and you're going to rule and reign and you're going to be exalted and you're going to be over everybody because by and large, that's what Jewish people believe the Messiah would do for them. And Peter's still looking for that. In fact, when he said that to Jesus, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because that's what he offered Jesus in the wilderness at the temptation, that you could have all of the kingdoms of the world without any cross. Peter was all into that. That's what all the Jewish people wanted. But it wasn't Jesus' kingdom. No, Jesus' kingdom involved, in fact, more than that, required a cross. Peter said, no, you know what? I'm going to be the greatest. In fact, at the end of this passage, he says, listen, you have, verse 28, you're those who have stayed with me in my trials. See, you're going to go through all this stuff, and that's why I'm going to reward you with this kingdom. But all they can hear is this. Jesus is going to give us thrones. Can you believe that? Well, I wonder which throne, I wonder if I'm going to be, remember when James and John said, hey, can we be, his mom asked, hey, can my sons be on your right hand and on your left? This is what they could think about. They weren't thinking about wearing a a cross or or uh, dying on a cross. They were thinking about crowns, thrones, kingdoms, exaltation. So Peter, from all of that, gets this false confidence, this false confidence that he's actually committed to Jesus, that he's actually prepared and ready to do the most extravagant sacrifice for the Lord that anyone could ask. I'd go to prison for you. I'd go to death for you. And I can tell you this, he doesn't mean because of you being arrested and crucified. He means, listen, if we have to fight for this battle, if we have to fight to get these thrones, hey, that's okay. I'm willing to give it all so that we can get these thrones. But there was no cross in his theology or in his life or in his practice. What happens? You say, Pastor Walker, how can I know? How can I know if the cross is making an impact in my life? How can I know that the cross is part of my daily life so that I can measure the commitment that I really have to Jesus and not be fooled like Peter was? What happens when the cross isn't at the center of your life? Two things. 
they're really the flip of the side of the same coin. It says this, and Jesus says to him in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke 22, in verse 31, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. First thing he did wrong was underestimate Satan. Now, he would learn his lesson, wouldn't he? I'm ready to go to prison and to death. The man could not even stand up to a servant girl. I mean, he couldn't even stand up for Jesus. In fact, when he denied Jesus and swore an oath, he made covenants of promise to God that he not, he not only did not know Jesus, but he didn't even know who he was. And this wasn't to Roman soldiers. This was to a little slave girl around a fire when he was warming his hands. So he was so far, so far from being committed to Jesus, although he thought he was most committed of all of the disciples. And you know what his problem was, what his downfall was? He underestimated how powerful the allurements and temptations of Satan can actually be. You ever do that in your life? You ever say this? I think I can handle that. I think I can handle that. My dad said when I was in ninth grade, that was still middle school back in the day, junior high as they called it. It wasn't a high school thing yet. My dad wanted me to do something in the off season because I played sports, but during track season I wasn't doing anything. So he said, you might as well stay in shape. So I said, well, what should I do? I've never done track before. He says, why don't you run the mile? I go, I hate running the mile. He goes, good, that's why you should run it. And so, but here's what he says. But here's what I don't want you ever to do. Don't ever do the hurdles. Because I was only five foot four in ninth grade. I hadn't grown any. That next year I would grow to what I am now, six nine. No. I, I would go to whatever I am now, five eleven, six foot, whatever. He goes, but you're too small. And the, you've seen the hurdles. They're way bigger. They're too big for you. I go, okay. So I went to practice. And every day, here's what we'd run. Lap after lap. We'd run forever. It was the most boring thing ever. And I hated it. Right? They wouldn't let you stop between laps to have a Mountain Dew or anything. And so one day we were all waiting around for the coach to get here. And I said, my friend goes, hey, I'll race you at the hurdles. I go, no, I can't. He goes, why? Because my dad told me not to. He goes, so? He goes, just one time. I said, all right. So I did the hurdles, literally the first hurdle. I couldn't get over it. I was too small. My dad was right. I hit my knee on the top of it. It flipped it all the way to the ground. The five-pound weight hit me right in the chin, right, right in the cheek. It split the inside of my jaw all the way from here all the way across. Literally, in two seconds, I went like this, and there was like blood everywhere. Oh, my friend, he doesn't go, are you okay? He runs. <laughs> he doesn't want to see all the blood. So I'm not thinking about the blood either. I'm thinking, how am I going to tell my dad? Because you know what I thought? I thought, oh, I'm ready for this. I can handle this. I underestimated the hurdle. <laughs> I did. I underestimated that it was going to whack me, that it was bigger and stronger than me. You ever done that in your life? Oh, I, I can handle looking at the Internet. I can. I can do that. And it doesn't matter if anyone else is around. It's in my room. Close the door. I can do that. I can handle this. How many times have you talked? Now, see, I'm on my, like, 721st diet this week. And you know what I tell myself? 
I can handle looking in, why? I don't know why I do this. I do know why. Why do I look in the refrigerator 13 times a day? It's the same thing that was in there the first time, and I keep looking at it. Something is going to magically appear in there. And I know that half the stuff in there, I can't have that. I'm on a low-carb diet, so it doesn't work. You can't exactly put Pop-Tarts into a low-carb diet. Why? Why? Because I, what, underestimate the power of the pool that food could have, that the idolatry that it can take form in your heart. See, his problem was he didn't have a cross. And so Satan knew that, and he wanted to sift him, sift him like wheat. That was to make the difference between the wheat and the part you don't use was the sifting process. In other words, he's going to let Peter know, Satan's going to let him know, this is who you really are, by the way. Let me sift you, and I'll show you. I don't really think you're wheat. But you know what's great about this passage? We, he underestimated Satan. But isn't it great, even when we do that, that we could never overestimate Jesus? Jesus says, Peter, you're going to fail. But I have prayed for you. I love that. You're going to fail. I prayed for you. And when you return to your brothers, strengthen their faith. Right? He's going to see, he underestimates Satan, but we can never underestimate Jesus because Jesus has power over the evil one. See, he's a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. And Peter would learn that later because you know what Peter learned later on as he grew up as a Christian and had real commitment to Jesus? He would say this, be careful, beware, my brothers. He says what? For the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See, he learned. He didn't underestimate him anymore. He knew, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, I'm vulnerable. I'm weak. I'm not the person I think I am. I'm not really as strong as I think I am. So guess what? You preached yourself this. I really can't handle it. I can't do that. I'm sorry, I can't do that. But here's the other side of it. He wasn't really committed because the cross, being crossless in his life said, I overestimate, underestimate, I'm sorry, Satan, and overestimate myself. I'm ready, master, to follow you into prison and to death. He overestimated himself. My friend Mike Armstrong, same grade, ninth grade, the hurdle year, and Troy Armstrong were the biggest guys in our public middle school. Way bigger. They were, I was five, three, or four. They were already six, one. And uh, they were the big guys in the basketball team and athletes and all that stuff. Well, they thought because we had the Blanchard River, the old song down by the old mill stream was written in our town. And the river went down there, but we'd had a major rain for days. And it was at flood stage. And so all the, the warning signs by the river were there. We had a little dam in the town and it right in the middle of town, and it would drop, and the dam would usually only, it would drop probably a good eight or ten, like, like maybe from right there at the bottom of the balcony to the floor. That's how far it would normally drop. And so no one goes over that. But this was so high that it was probably, the d- drop was only the size of this pulpit. A lot less. So they thought that they could handle it. And they invited me to go with them. And I thought, wow, that would be great because they're so popular. Everyone likes them. And so I said, I I will go. 
But I never got to go because my mom's, I remember, oh, I got a dentist appointment of all things. So our van drives down River Road. I see Troy and Mike getting into the canoe, even though there are signs there, no canoeing. <laughs> and they asked another guy, Rob Kendall, to go with them. And he was there, but I don't know the story, but he never got in. They just two guys in one canoe. Maybe they thought they couldn't fit. They went over the canoe. They were going to get me ready. I didn't see him go in the water. I went to my dentist appointment. 30, 40 minutes later, I come back, and there's fire, and there's an ambulance, fire engines. And what I learned is they, went, they thought they could handle going over the dam with a small drop, but they didn't realize the water was so fast and so fierce that when they went over, it sucked their canoe down, and it bent it straight like a V. Mike Armstrong sucked all the way down. It was like 15 feet deep. And there's a log under there. He never came up. And Troy Best fought and fought and fought. And a fireman finally came to the rescue. And they took a little raft out there. And he was getting on top of it with the firemen. And pulled the two of them over. And all three of them drowned. So four people drowned that day. But you know how it started? I think I can handle that. <laughs> they overestimated themselves. They thought that, oh, I'm big and, I'm the, and, and I can do this. It's not, and they were wrong, and not to be funny, but dead wrong. They were dead wrong. And listen, being wrong in Peter's case and thinking he was that committed, see, was wrong. And it was very, very harmful to his spiritual well-being. On the other side of it, you got Paul, and he says to them, I'm ready to the Lord. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned in Acts 21, if you'll turn there. He says, I'm ready to go to prison and to death too. But he really was. What was the difference? Well, the difference is <coughs> the cross in his life. If you look back to the beginning of his life in ministry in Acts 9, the very first thing from the Damascus Road that Jesus tells him, Ananias, go and tell Saul that he's a chosen vessel of mine because I want to show him how many things he's going to suffer for my sake. I mean, the very first thing Jesus tells this guy is, you know why I saved you? Because I want you to be just like me and everything. And there's a beautiful book and there's a chart and it shows all the parallels to what Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem and all the things that happened there. And then, it parallel, and then parallel to that is Paul's last journey to Jerusalem and all that was done there. And it's obvious that Luke writes Acts and wants you to think Paul is just like Jesus. And he knows that the cross is the center of his life from the very beginning. He knows that that means he's going to suffer. And he knows that he needs to go to Jerusalem. Now, in our chapter, we don't take the time to do it tonight. But everybody who comes is moved by the Holy Spirit to say, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get in big trouble. It's going to be bad. Don't go. That's the first part of the chapter. Later on in the chapter, right before our text, Agabus is a prophet of God and he said, the Holy Spirit has told me that, and he takes off Paul, a belt, and he says, wraps it around his wrist, he says, this is what's going to happen to the man who goes to Jerusalem. In other words, they're going to imprison you, they're going to bind you, and they're going to beat you. And so everyone, including Luke the writer, he points it out, tries to tell him, don't go, <laughs> don't go up there. And Paul responds by, what are you trying to do, weeping and breaking my heart? And then he says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the difference was, is Paul knew the framework of his life was not trying to avoid the cross, but to embrace it. 
that the cross was what not only what Jesus had done for him, but Jesus wanted him to do with him. So he would later write in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He knew that. And he knew that the life he would live as a cross Christian would be one of suffering. And so he says in Philippians 3.10, he says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings that I might be made conformable unto his death. His whole life was saying, I want to be conformed to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the pattern of his life. Death, resurrection. That's how he viewed ministry. That's how he viewed life. And so when he knew God wanted him to go to Jerusalem, he knew that he was going to go. In fact, he had planned on it. Can I really quickly show you? Look at chapter 19 and verse 21 of Acts. I'm going to move fast. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. He resolved in his spirit. See that? He made up his mind. This is what God wants. To pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. This wasn't just something suddenly that came on him. Oh, yeah, let's think about that. And everybody's telling me not. No, he'd already planned a long time ago. This was what his God wanted him to do. Chapter 20 and verse 22. I have that right. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, not on my own, what? Constrained by the Holy Spirit, he says. And I don't know what's going to happen to me. But here's what he did know, because he got this from the very beginning, ready? Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, here's what awaits me, imprisonment and afflictions. He says, everywhere I go, this is what I'm waiting to have happen. They're going to beat me, imprison me. And do all kinds of things to me. This is what I know is my lot because I'm conformed to Jesus in his death and suffering and resurrection. That's, that's what he knew was to be what he wanted. So here's what he says. So go back to ours. Verse 12, 21. When he heard these, this, we and the people were urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul says, what are you doing? Are you kidding? This is my life. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, that wasn't just what he thought God wanted to do. It's what Jesus wanted to do, and he verifies that after the event. Look at 23.11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, just like I wanted you to, see? So you must also testify in Rome. And that's eventually where he gets killed. So God wanted him there. That was his life. And you know why he could say, I'm ready to die and be imprisoned? Because he knew that's what it meant. That was part and parcel of following Jesus. To lose your life, to take up your cross, to embrace the suffering and the loss. So these things were never things that he tried to shy away from. They weren't surprises to, them, to him. It was the framework in which he functioned. It's how he lived his life. Now let me say, you might say, well, Pastor Walker, how do I get there? How do I have a framework so that through my day and all my decisions and all my relationships, that I think of everything through the cross, what it means to follow Jesus and take up mine and be like him and all that might come into my life because of it. So I'm not surprised when things happen to me and don't go the way I want and it's tragic and all that. How do I have that happen? How do I make those right choices? 
last few things, and I'm just going to give them to you pretty much. Going back to our text in 22, would you look there one more time? <coughs> 21, I'm sorry. Remember what I told you? His friends tell him what? We urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Listen, number one, write it down. Adults and kids alike who need this. When you're trying to take up your cross and follow Jesus, number one, you have to know this. Bad advice can come from good friends. Bad advice can come from good friends. There will be people who want to tell you that you need to have your life balanced that you need to make sure, hey, listen, don't do that, because if you do that, then this will happen. And what about this? And you can't do that. Do you know what will happen to you? And bad advice can come from good friends. They mean well. It's no doubt that they love you. They're sincere in what they want you to do. But they just don't understand that you've chosen the cross and the life it embraces and what it means. And for Paul says, listen, are you kidding? I'm ready to die for him. You're worried about me being beaten? I, I'd be in prison and die for him if I needed to. So be wary, because even the best of friends can give bad advice. Number two, I put this. You can't give in to your emotions. You know how hard and difficult it is to do something that conforms to the crucifixion of Jesus and his death and resurrection? It will not be agreed on by a lot of people. Look what he says. This is to his friend Luke. These are people who love him. And here's what he says to him. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing, he says. What are you trying? Are you weeping and breaking my heart? He, he says, you, are you really crying over this? He'd say, like, come on, we love you, Paul. He says, what are you doing? You know why? Because he is, says, I've, like Jesus, I set my face toward Jerusalem. This is what God wants me to do. And w- when you get all emotional on me and you cry and you try to urge me not to go, you're keeping me from doing what he wants me to do. So they were crying and weeping him and ur- urging. And it's pleading with Paul, please don't go. He says, what are you doing? See, you're going to have to overcome those feelings and those emotions. Right? You're leaving people and they don't want you to go. And you're doing things. They don't want you to make those sacrifices. They don't want to not see you anymore. In, the, in this chapter, earlier on, this says in the, at the end of chapter 20, and, and what bothered them the most is when he kneeled on the shore to pray is that they would see his face no more. And they were crying over it, it says. That's hard, isn't it? You make decisions to take up your cross and move across the other side of the United States. Are you going to take a life where... You're poor, and you don't make much money, and you have sacrifice, and your children say, I, you know, Dad, I really want to do this with my life. See, you can't give in to the emotions and everybody around you, because it's going to be very difficult to follow the cross, because it won't be popular or well-liked by most. And thirdly, be careful that you don't put down your cross because you know the outcome in advance. See, What I love about the Lord is that he tells you through his words and through his own life that if you desire to follow me, this is what's going to happen. You'll have to lose your life. You'll have to lose it. you have to give away everything you have and give it to the poor, he said to someone, and then come follow me. 
If you crucify yourself, you're going to have to die, and you're not going to get everything you want, and people won't like it, and maybe it means this, and maybe it means this, and he's going to set all these things, and maybe you'll suffer, and maybe you're not going to, you won't make it back. Maybe you won't make it back, he says. But he tells you, and Paul says, I know the outcome for me. But he says a wonderful passage, and I'll quote it for you as we close. He says, in verses 22 to 24 of Acts 20, he says, I only know this, but the Holy Spirit says that afflictions and imprisonment await for me in every city I go. He says, but none of these things move me. He goes, nor do I count my life of any value to myself. See what he says? But that I might complete the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus by the grace of the gospel of God. I mean, the grace of God, that I might finish the gospel ministry of the grace of God. You know what he says? I know what's ahead for me, but I'm not moved by it. I'm not moved by it. It's not going to stop me. You can't say anything from keeping me to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice. Do you know why? Because my life's value is how I live out the life and cross of Jesus. That's where my life has value. Not in all the things you're putting into it, he says. And so at the end of his life, Paul could say in his swan song epistle, last verses almost, in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. Listen to this. I finished the course. That's what he said. I'm not straying from the course because it doesn't move me. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me the crown, which is righteousness, which the righteous Lord or judge shall give me on that day, but not to me only, but also to those who love his appearing. He said, it's not just for me. It's for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. If you'll love him like that, You'll love Jesus and his cross and wait for him to come back and see him face to face. See, you'll have the ability to overcome the wrong advice of friends who mean well, the emotions that they stir up in your heart to help you do what they would want instead of God because they want you around. And you'll be able to say, even though I know the certainty of the outcome won't be pleasurable, there'll be a gladness in it because it's why I exist. It's why I live, is to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to be ready. We want to be prepared. We live in a culture where this kind of, uh, can I say, showdown is probably on the horizon for some of us. We're going to have to say, well, we hold on to the truth, even if it means we're arrested for politically bad language. Not holding on to government rules about the beliefs and sexuality that we hold from Scripture. We're going to be told that we can no longer tell our children what their gender is. And we're going to have to decide how committed we are We're going to have to decide about whether we'll take up our cross at any cost. Father, may we not just think that we're ready. May we be ready. And that's why you told us that taking up our cross is something we have to do daily because the time to prepare to be ready is now. 
in all the little choices and the daily choices, the little ones, the medium-sized ones, and the big ones, that we begin to have a functioning framework that is cross-centered, that is cruciform in everything. May you help prepare us to be ready now so that when we have the opportunity to say, I'm ready to follow you, Jesus, to prison and to death, that that reality will be just that, real in our lives. And we'll thank you ahead of time for that, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.